0: i to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. So if you go to the back of your Bible and move toward the front, you'll find it sooner rather than later there. But 1 Peter chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 7. And before we begin, though, I want to remind you that we have been talking about the central ideas of the Christian faith. We have been talking about the very thing that makes someone Christian. Namely, that they believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, that He was buried, and that He rose again. We're told that the good news or the Gospel is that Christ died according to the Scriptures He was buried and He rose again On the third day according to the Scriptures, that the the very thing that you or I need to believe to have eternal life is that centered on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's really what we talked about last week in now if you found chapter four by now, you can look back to chapter three, verse eighteen, where it says, Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. That's the center of the Christian message. It's what you must believe to find eternal life. That Christ was righteous, that He died in your place. In dying in your place, He did it for the sake of your sins that they might be forgiven and that you might be brought back to God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Now, the reason I start there is because most people treat that like it's theory. Like it's just a good idea that I believe Jesus died and rose again. And that believing that good idea, one day it's going to really pay off when I die. Right? When I die, I won't go to hell. I'll go to heaven because I believe that. And that's sort of the end of the story, the way that a lot of people think about it. When you realize, though, what you have there, you have Jesus dying for your sin and rising again. And it tells us there at the end of chapter 3 that he subjected all things to himself. All the angels, all the principalities, all the powers. Any enemy of your soul is subject to Jesus. Now, that is a good theory. But see, again, most of us think that's just sort of an idea and it doesn't have anything to do with the way I live my life day by day. And I want to suggest to you that what is happening now when we get to chapter 4, verse 7, is that he is taking the central theme of the victory of Jesus and saying to us, This is how someone who believes in the victory of Jesus would live day by day by day. This is, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again, then it has implications for this afternoon, for Wednesday at lunch, and for Saturday morning. And you see what he's doing now is he's going to move from the theoretical to the practical. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, he's going to show us four ways that if you really believe Christ died for you and rose again, that it will impact your life. There are four characteristics of those who believe in Jesus. That those characteristics mark your life so that it isn't just uh, religious theory, but rather it's something that actually makes a difference day to day. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So you have here, I think, the application to life of... The idea that Jesus has died and rose again and now is victorious over all things. And that application has four facets to it that I want to make sure that you see. And the reason I think it's the application is the way that he starts here. The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. This is—I uh, mean—when somebody says something like that, right? It's supposed to get your attention. Okay, the end is near. Even though I had a sandwich board on me up here in front, the end is near. What's the point of saying that? I mean, he said this a long time ago, right? If The end is near. Then—and what's—it's never happened. What's going on? I grew up—I grew up in the church. That talked a lot about the end times. Some of you did too. The, the end times were the things that like spooked you and got you really nervous. When he, you know, the most exciting thing in the church, I have to say, the, the fire and the brimstone seemed to be real at the end times. In fact, part of my story of coming to faith was that I was scared into it by a movie that I saw when I was a teenager. And, uh, the, you know, the, the end came and there was bombs and all these things and it's like, oh dear, Jesus, don't let me be around for that. Save me and take me away and I was, I mean, I, I was kind of scared into it. It all turned out good, but I, <laughs> may have happened for the wrong reason, I'm just gonna say. I don't think that's what he has in mind here, that you need to think about these end times, uh, because think about it. Back then, back then it was the Cold War. And there's a whole different set of enemies, a whole different set of world circumstances. Everyone thought the end was going to come in a way that it didn't come. Okay, that was a long time ago. And then there's been about, I don't know, 30 different ends of the worlds that were supposed to happen between then and now. They still haven't. I mean, most recent was about three weeks ago. You remember World War III was going to start. There was a hashtag, World War III. And uh, thankfully it didn't come. That is not what he's talking about here. That you need to look for signs throughout the political world of the end times. What he's he's talking about here, I think, is that the, the final chapter is upon us. With the death of Jesus and His resurrection, He has inaugurated the final chapter in God's plan for history. That's what this means. So the final chapter is here. You need to act as though the final chapter is here. Okay, we're still in the same final chapter that Peter was in when he wrote. So the end of all things at hand. You can think of it... Here's an illustration that may help you. There has been a lot made of... um, nobody take offense at this, I'm not thinking of anyone particular, of the millennial generation who goes away to college and comes back and lives in their parents' basement. Okay, that's very stereot. It's a stereotype. It's not personal here. And the talk from the mom and the dad to the young person in the basement is, you're an adult. Start adulting, right? We even turned that into a word. You need to act like an adult because you're now an adult. You've had other chapters. You were a baby. Then you were a toddler. Then you were uh, a child. And then you were a teenager. And now you're an adult. Start acting like one, okay? If you haven't heard the speech, that's great, okay? Um, But that's how the speech goes. That's a speech that Peter's giving us here. All of you, okay? There have been all of these chapters from the Garden of Eden to the Fall to all of the um, patriarchs and the prophets and all of this throughout history. We are now, we are now in this final chapter after the resurrection of Jesus, and we need to act as people in this final chapter. So there's a sense of urgency. You can't put this off or ignore this. And in fact, that's what the next part sounds like. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Be self-controlled and sober-minded so that there is this seriousness about life that comes from knowing that, that all that God has started in this world has come about in the person of Jesus and there is only a matter of time until He pulls the ripcord. The end of all things at hand, so be sober-minded and self-control. And what He has in mind here is for you to have a clear picture of reality. So you know exactly what life is like. So don't medicate with substances. Don't... Uh, somehow trying to escape with sex. That's what earlier in chapter 4 he was talking about. But rather, have your senses sharp to understand what the world is like. Be awake. Pay attention. And it's these two words, sober-minded and self-controlled, are are the, the closest synonyms of one another that you could have you know in the greek language when he's writing this to say what i really want for you is i want you to know this state of your own soul i want you to know the state of the world and i want you to act like an adult because you need to be on guard the end is near and what happens what do you know when you're paying attention when you're thinking about things in a sober way what do you know <laughs> you know you need to pray. You're going to be sober-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. It is very interesting to me that if you have an illusion about the world, if you have an illusion about your own strength or ability or aptitude, you might be able to get by without praying. You might not need any supernatural help. But if you see things like they really are, if you see the world for what it is and your own heart for what it is, then you will need to pray. That's what he's saying. The clearer you see things, the more you'll pray. And so, I suppose it's fair just to stop, right? And invite you to have a moment of self-reflection. Does this characterize your life? That you are... Sober-minded, that you see the world clearly and that you pray. Because these are marks of someone who really gets the fact that Jesus died for their sins. They're reconciled to God and forgiven. And Jesus has um, risen and is at the right hand of God and everything is subject to Him. So, why wouldn't you talk to Him if you have access, right? If you really get that, you will talk to Him. In fact, this whole book has been about what it means to live in a world where you have no power. To live in a world as an exile and a sojourner and a stranger. And these little bands of Christians throughout Asia Minor received this letter. And he said, I'm writing to the exiles. And And then he said, be subject to every human institution. Be submissive. And then he says, why? Because Jesus has subjected everything to himself, and you can submit to every authority that um, every human institution because you know someone that is over every human institution, and you have direct access to talk straight away to him, that is, if you see things correctly, if you see things as they really are, you 'll talk to God about your life, about the world, and so you'll be sober-minded, self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. And the first characteristic of someone who believes the Gospel, who believes it not merely so that they have fire insurance and don't go to hell when they die, but who believes it today, the first characteristic is that they pray. And so, we want to build that into the life of our church. One of the characteristics of a life group, one of the five practices is that they pray for one another. Every first Wednesday of the month, we call a day of prayer. And there's nothing magical about it. And I don't know even all that happens on a day of prayer, except I want to invite you to be this kind of person to see things clearly for how it really is so that you might pray. Because that's a result of believing the Gospel. Is that you pray... um, like Jesus really has subjected everything to himself. So that's the first characteristic. The second, then, is in the next verse. And then he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. The second characteristic, then, is that you love one another earnestly. You're serious about loving one another. This makes me laugh a little bit because you hear a lot about loving one another. Jesus Himself said, I'm going to give you a new commandment that you love one another. But Peter, for some reason, thinks he needs to say more than Jesus said. Jesus said, love one another. Peter says, love one another earnestly. Love one another intently. And I think that's interesting because I... I like to think of myself as a loving guy, okay? Some of you might think otherwise that's your business. Even that sounds loving, doesn't it? And by that, what I tell myself, the story I tell myself is, oh, if I see, if I see you at the grocery store, I'll be nice to you. Or if I see you drive by, I'll wave. As though somehow... That's what Jesus is talking about. And I think Peter adds this. Love one another earnestly because I have the wrong idea. The idea isn't merely that I'm nice on accident. It's that I am intentional about living my life in a way that engages other people's lives. In other words, I mean to do it. I do it on purpose. That would be a way you could think about it. Above all, keep loving one another on purpose. So that I'm thinking about that. my time, my calendar, my energy, my schedule, my to-do list, all of those things that I balance throughout my life and I'm saying, how do I fit other people in there? Because I want to. Because that's, that's the way that I live when I really believe Christ died to forgive my sins and rose again to, to give victory to me. So I'm living my life on purpose to love other people. And just a little more on that too. Above all, love one another earnestly. When I hear a message like this, I feel guilty. Okay, Because even though I like to think of myself as loving, I know I'm not loving enough. Right, So I feel guilty. Maybe you're feeling guilty. I don't know. I don't mean to make you feel guilty. I mean to say, though, that what it means to believe in the in the fact that Jesus suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God, means that God loves you. God demonstrates His love for us in this, that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What that means is that God has first loved me. He's not asking me to feel guilty and try a little harder out of duty to you know, make myself more loving. Instead, He's saying, you have been so lavishly loved by God How about if you on purpose share a little bit of that with somebody else? That's really what he's saying. Because you've been loved by God, love one another on purpose. Because or since, love covers a multitude of sins. Okay, This doesn't add anything to the atonement of Christ. Christ forgives your sin. It's not a matter of you somehow being right with God. This is a matter of what happens in the community. Because if you're on purpose when you love people, If you're close enough to them to love them, they will frustrate you. In fact, it's the people who are closest that will hurt you the worst. And what he's talking about here is that keep on loving them because love in the community covers sin. It helps you put aside those things that would otherwise cause conflict. This is a community uh, event where we are loving one another. We are helping each other forgive. We're helping each other solve conflict. We're helping each other take the next steps to overlook a smaller offense. We're doing everything we can to love one another so that we don't have to get all blown up when somebody crosses us. And again, think of this. Here you have these little bands of aliens and pilgrims throughout the the world called the Church of Jesus Christ. They have access directly to the King of the universe who has subjected all things to Himself, so they pray. And then they are loved by Him and they pass that love to one another so that they don't need power outside. They don't need to manipulate the outside world because they have love on the inside. So love one another earnestly and help one another's Um, forgive, smooth out the conflicts, and uh, work life out together. That's his picture. So love one another earnestly and pray. And then the uh, the third characteristic is show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is sort of an interesting thing to throw in here, isn't it? To show hospitality. Well, the the hospitality piece simply means that I am taking a stranger and I'm making them my friend. I'm taking someone who is uh, a stranger or unknown to me and I'm using my resources and I'm taking initiative to turn them into a friend. What a gift that is to the whole community. What a gift it is to take the initiative to do that. And I am i mean, think about this. We don't... Nobody here knows everybody here, I'm sure. And so, we leave a Sunday morning and we're gone. And representing Jesus in the world when we don't know each other and we don't care for one another, we're not taking initiative in each other's life, that's... That's weak sauce. But on the other hand, if you take the initiative and you use your resources and your time to, to to take a stranger and a friend, even if you do it once, even if you do it once a month, if everyone here did something like this once a month, it would radically transform the community, and it would help the band of aliens and strangers and exiles, chapter two, verse eleven, hang together and represent Jesus in this world. Because they believe that He died for them and rose again. So they show hospitality to one another. They show hospitality to one another by taking initiative and they do it without grumbling. It's funny, I've had to think, why do they do it without grumbling? Well, probably because they grumble when they do it. Probably because it's not very easy to show hospitality, so it's like, oh, really? I gotta get the house cleaned up again? I gotta cook again? Nobody ever calls me! Okay? Lots of ways you can grumble here. But he says, this is an important aspect of loving the people of God and belonging to the people of God. So show hospitality one another without grumbling. I, we had, there's a family in the church that is really good at this. And they just go out of their way week after week to, to show hospitality to people. In other words, they're not just having their best friends over. That's not necessarily showing hospitality. It's reaching across some kind of a difference or some kind of a divide or some kind of an unknown to make a stranger a friend. And they do that. And they do it regularly. And they do it faithfully. And they, they did it for us. They had Marston over, and sometimes that happens when people have the Passover, then they, so like, you make a big deal out of it, right? And they put on some sort of, uh, false, uh, air, and it, the house is a little cleaner and a little nicer and everything just well. but it, it was just like it should be. It was perfect when they had us over. And, you know, they were gonna, they were gonna grill some pizza for us, and they made, uh, they, they made the pizza, and we got to talking, and we kept talking, and the pizza kept cooking, and the pizza began smoking, and it became black, and, uh, you know, went out outside, just thing of smoke billet everywhere, and we had the best time. And they tell that story too, and I ask their permission. But part of the problem is, we don't have the courage to do that. We think, oh, everything has to be perfect. You know what? It doesn't. Have some people over and burn something for them. Okay? I'm just saying because that is the way the church of Jesus Christ blesses other people. It's by taking the initiative and saying, you know, it doesn't matter if I get everything right. I've been shown grace. And I'm going to show grace to you. And it was just a beautiful thing. And I just I tell that story because I hope it helps you be like them and have the same kind of courage and do it without grumbling so, show hospitality. That's the third characteristic. And the, then the fourth one is like it. There at the end it says, As each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now here he says, As each of you have received a gift. And when you start talking in church about a gift, there are some who... They're actually the same people who really liked the end of the world conversations. Also like spiritual gift conversations. And I'm just going to say that's not the idea here either. The idea here is that all of you have received grace from God. So then as good stewards of that varied grace, use it to give it away and serve other people. In fact, the, the word gift here, The Greek word translated gift is charisma. The Greek word here translated grace is charis. Charis and charisma, they're they're the same. So if you've received grace, in other words, you have believed that Jesus died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God, and you embrace that, you've received grace. If you've received grace, it comes in a variety of forms. The uh, I, I love that word too. It just means the many colored or diverse grace of God, which that 's so great that your grace isn 't like my grace we had a We had a problem this morning when when I got here, there was a key stuck in the door, and it didn 't unlock the front door of the church and somebody somebody had grace enough to realize you could duct tape it. And fix it by duct taping. I didn't think about that. I was like, I gotta go do something else. You know, and somebody duct taped it. And then they went ahead and said to somebody else, hey, we got a problem where he's stuck in the door. Somebody else had received grace from God and they fixed it. I don't know how they did it. Somebody told me it was real easy. All they had to do was call Terry. And that's real easy to fix the door. But that's because he has grace different than my grace and he was willing to share it. See, and that's what he's talking about here is that when when you have received grace from God, be a dispenser of grace rather than just a uh, receptacle of grace. And so, steward it well and give it away. Let other people share grace. And this is the very same thing that you're doing with the love, right? You've been loved by God, so love other people. This is the very same thing you're doing with hospitality. You've received God's hospitality. The whole history of the Bible is the history of God's hospitality. He made a place for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He prepared a meal before His people in the wilderness with manna. He uh, sent Jesus as the bread of life. He left us uh, the Lord's Supper so that we would be reminded what it is that makes us included in this grace. He set before us a wedding supper in the future that we all long for when God Himself is the host and we're all gathered around the wedding supper of the Lamb and we're enjoying God's hospitality. So if you've received God's hospitality, pass it along to other people. And now if you've received grace, pass it along. So all of this is doing nothing more than just passing along what I've already received. Nobody's feeling guilty. Nobody's just trying to you know, screw up their own self-effort. They're all trusting in what they've received from God. And then he says, use it to serve one another. What God has given you, He's given it not just for you, He's given it to you for someone else. So I'm never thinking of receiving grace as I'm the final destination for that grace. I'm not. You are. And I'm the final destination for your grace. And we all are for each other. So, whoever speaks, speak as the oracles of God. Whoever serves, serve with the strength God supplied. There are two categories here. Speaking and serving. This is very, this is very much a way that you would talk if you wanted to encompass all of life. Right? When the Apostle Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all. For the glory of God. You're doing all of it. All of life is summed up in the speaking and the serving. There's no special things. It's all a variety of grace that we've received in this spectrum of speaking and serving. So, do it for someone else. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Now, this is a little intimidating. Right? I don't know if you've ever thought about Speaking the oracles of God. But you'd probably use a deeper voice, wouldn't you? I don't know. Literally, I think you'd speak the words that God gives you. Now, how are you going to know if they're words God gives you? Okay, here I'm going to to pull a string through the whole thing here. You're going to know that these are the words that God gives you because you pray about it. Right, you're sober-minded, and you're going to pray, and so you're going to pray about speaking to someone. And before you speak to them, you're just going to say, "God, help me say the right thing," because that's the thing. I I don't know what to say. I I, I do this every week. I have to come up here and talk to you, and you're like, God, I don't know what I'm going to say. Would you please help me make it worthwhile somehow for someone? That's the way. That you speak the oracles of God. I mean, I'm thinking about two people walking down the hall. They're going to walk, One's going to walk down the hall this way. One's coming this way. They see each other. It's like, oh God, I don't know what to say. God help me. That's all. That's all it takes, right? Like, God help me. I'm going to pray about it, and then you're going to say something and trust that the Lord will give you the words. And whether it's encouragement or whether it's teaching or whether it's um, just making small talk, whatever God gives you, go with it. Because you're trusting in the grace that God gives you. You're not coming up with this on your own. You're trusting the grace God gives you. That's what the previous part of the verse was about. And if you serve, you're going to serve by the strength that God supplies. So this is the same thing too. How are you going to know if you're serving in the strength God supplies or if you're serving in your own strength? You're going to ask Him for strength. you to say, God, I... I don't think I can do anything of spiritual significance here. Would you just help me? And when you'll humbly do that, He will. And you're going to serve that. That's different than doing nothing because you don't feel like it, right? <laughs> when you don't feel like it, that's when you're going to pray. And you're going to do it in His, in his strength. And you're going to serve by the strength that God supplies So that that way you're taking the grace He's giving you and you're giving it to someone else and you know that that connection is being made because you're praying about it. But that's the whole connection anyway. You're going to love people by praying for them first. So this whole prayer thing that leads has to do with the passing on the grace here at the end. You're going to pray about it and you're going to love them. And when you're in conflict with them, you're going to pray for them. And it's going to cover a multitude of sins. And when you feel like grumbling instead of showing hospitality you're going to pray for people that you're having over you're going to pray for people you're taking initiative with so that then god's grace will come there and you're going to serve and speak as with god's words and god's strength and when this happens the very thing that's supposed to happen in the community of faith happens and that is we gather together we are the people of god the church of jesus christ so that God receives glory through Jesus Christ. See, the point of this is not that I feel better because I do this. Sometimes I'm going to feel worse. The point of it is that I do it so that God gets glory. And He gets glory when I use His strength to serve. He gets glory when I use His words to speak. He gets glory when I pray and I'm sober-minded enough to know how how much I need Him. He gets glory when I love people and I don't feel like loving them. He gets glory when I take the initiative and I make a stranger a friend. So all of these things make God look good because they connect the death of Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God, and His resurrection with real life. Because real life people who believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for their salvation live this way. And when they live this way, in His strength, it brings Him glory. In fact, so much so that He doubles down on it here at the end. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen! He says that is the point of your life is to live for the glory of God with His strength, through prayer, loving people, making strangers friends, and sharing the grace that you've received. And when that happens, you show that you actually believe what God tells you. That He sent His Son to suffer for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That He has raised Christ and put Him at the right hand of God and subjected all things to Himself. And so when you believe that, you'll pray, you'll love, you'll show hospitality, and you'll dispense grace that you've received to other people. Let's pray. God, I don't know what else to pray here, but just that You'll help us to do this. That You'll help us to believe, first of all. To be full of faith and trust that You alone uh, will save us. That You alone will do for us what we can't do for ourselves in providing eternal salvation. Would You help us believe that? But then, Father, more than that, I pray that you would be kind and gracious to us and help us to live in a way that shows the world and shows each other that, yes, in fact, we are trusting in you day by day. So thank you for your word. Thanks for the encouragement. Thanks for the love that is shared, uh, even, even in times that I am not unaware of between uh, people in this church. And I pray that you would just help it be more and more. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.